live from New York, it's the Double K Super Show! Welcome to the podcast that no one has demanded, yet no one has shut down yet. This is the Double K Podcast. I'm Chris Karam, a.k.a. Chris Karam. I'm Mark Konzorowski, bone like a snake, with the consciousness of a saint. It's always a, it's always a pleasure hearing your latest intro. And uh, this episode, we have the distinction, or this gentleman has the distinction, of being our very first guest. You may know him, or you should know him, as the co-founder and co-host of the first and longest-running KISS podcast. Of course, I'm referring to Podkissed. Our special guest tonight is Mr. Gary Schaller. Gary, welcome to the Double K Super Show. I am so excited to be here talking about a great band with two great guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. We couldn't get the two great guys, but we'll have to just <laughs> suffice. Oh, they're coming. I invited them in. <laughs> oh, good. Mark, why don't you tell everybody what tonight's uh, show is going to be about? Tonight we'll be dealing with the long and varied history of the immortal Blue Oyster Cult. We both uh, know from our discussions and you know our interacting with Gary as a, as a longtime friend that he's a aficionado of the cult. So, Gary, why don't you tell us your history? How did you discover Blue Oyster Cult, and you know what got you into them, and what do you maybe maybe you can tell us your favorite album, favorite songs, whatnot. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know. I, like so many of us, heard the three songs on the radio that I think everybody hears, right? They're the three uh, Buck Dharma songs, right? Uh, Godzilla, Don't Fear the Reaper, and Burning for You. Beyond that, I was interested in Blue Oyster Cult because I think as a KISS fanatic, um, you can't hear about KISS without hearing about Blue Oyster Cult, and I think probably vice versa as well. Uh, Freshman year of college, I think it was 1993, um, I bought a probably like one of the greatest hits cassettes uh, at a record store in upstate New York. And um, I just fell in love with a lot of the music that was on there and, and then quickly sort of tried to buy up a bunch of their albums. Um, I also went undergrad to and grad um, to Stony Brook University, which is on Long Island in New York, if people don't know. And that is where, I, as, as I understand it, Blue Oyster Cult was kind of formed. They're a Long Island band, and I think they're, they have their roots at Stony Brook University. So um, it's also hard to kind of go to school on Long Island and not be in and around the Blue, the, the Blue Oyster Cult. Um, I, I think just as somebody who has, you know, most of their albums and who loves a lot of their music, um, I think you're either kind of really into them or you just kind of know the radio songs. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. And I have to confess that um, I'm not, you know, I'm fanatical about Kiss. I'm fanatical about Pink Floyd, meaning like I know every song. I know every, all the like the trivia and, and all the band members and all the junk. I don't know as much about Blue Oyster Cult, but to be honest with you, I think part of like the mystique of Blue Oyster Cult is that they're a little bit less accessible in that way. They, they, they do have a shroud of mystery around them, um, which I kind of like. Yeah, there. Uh, I just, in fact, recently read a book by Martin Popoff, which is a biography of them, and it does peel back some of the mystery. I mean, like every band, they have their ups and downs and dysfunctions, but like you said, I think part of their appeal has always been that they, they do have this air of mystery about them. I, myself, my first awareness of Blue Oyster Cult was Fire of Unknown Origin in 1981, um that album i didn't have the album but i did have i think i had the 45 of burning for you and of course like you know gary like you said it's it's godzilla and don't fear the reaper and you know burning for you and for years uh all i had by them was a cd compilation and a few years back i i decided to take a chance and i delved into this i bought this box set called the complete columbia recordings which is everything from their debut album through Imaginos, which was their last album for Columbia in 1988. And no regrets. There's a lot of great stuff in that package and a lot of great music. There's some good rarities, too. Mark, what is your story with uh, Blue Oyster Cult? Leafing through the uh, the album racks back when we used to have record stores and seeing the album covers, it was pretty much the album covers that drew me in. Um, they have some of the best album artwork of any group on the market. And, of course, also hearing the songs on the radio, the three hits, as everyone knows. Um, Also, um, seeing Veteran of the Psychic Wars being played in the heavy metal cartoon movie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That that certainly 
Yeah, I think I think Veteran of the Psychic Wars was in that too, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah, also, yeah. Also, uh, Mob Rules by Black Sabbath and a few other songs. It's funny that for a movie called Heavy Metal, I wonder how many people thought that that movie was going to be about heavy metal music, and, and turns out, it, yeah, as we all know, it's about heavy metal, the the comic book uh, magazine. But they, of course, did have to have a couple of token metal groups. Although, I mean, Blue Oyster Cult is classed by some as as metal, but I, I I don't think of them as metal. To me, they're just hard rock, kind of almost with a progressive mm-hmm. kind of deal. What do you, you know? How would you, would you agree with that, Gary? Or yeah, I was listening to the first record today, uh, kind of prepping and gearing up for this, and there are even moments on on some of the early stuff that that sound almost like. Uh, like Grateful Dead. Um, there's a heaviness to it, and there is like a snaky, sort of windy, progressive-y thing with some tunes like uh, Transmaniacon um, or Workshop of the Telescopes. But um, but yeah, they, they, uh, there's a folkiness and like a, a grooviness to it as well. Um, I, I Just as you bring up, I'm so glad, uh, Mark, that you mentioned the heavy metal movie because I completely forgotten um, that that was one of the doors that I went through to Blue Oyster Cult because I love that song and I do love that movie. It doesn't age well, but I do love it. It was a sort of mix of, well, it was an anthology movie. There were a bunch of different storylines that kind of link up at the end. It was a strange movie. Oh, yeah. It's one to see for sure. Yeah, it was one of those movies that, I mean, when it came out, I think I was 14 going on 15, and some of the imagery in that movie was like, oh, well, that's, that's, this is not uh, Looney Tunes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But getting back to BOC, it's interesting. They were known prior to being called Bluish Occult as uh, the Soft White Underbelly and the Stark Forest Group, I believe. And then by 1972, they changed the name. And I, and I just read about, I reread some of the that book I was telling you about. But I don't remember exactly what prompted them to come up with the name Blue Oyster Cult. Um, I, I, I probably should have maybe gone back and researched that right before the show, but I was too lazy to do that. Blue Oyster Cult is, um, is a phrase that comes from Sandy Perlman's Imaginos cycle. The, the entire reason that the group was formed in the first place was to be the, the vehicle for which Sandy Perlman told his Imaginos cycle. So that's why, you know, you have songs on the first album like Workshop of the Telescopes and other songs that come throughout the history, like Astronomy, for example. Mm-hmm. Many well, of them many of them are part of the Imaginos cycle, which, of course, culminates in the actual Imaginos album, which is, we can talk about that when the time comes. It's not really a Blue Oyster Cold album. It was originally meant as Albert Bouchard's solo album. He recorded it as a solo record. The record company threatened to reject it unless the BOC name was put on there. So therefore, Don Roser and Eric Bloom contributed vocals. But that's really the only contribution they made. Yeah, and the Blue Oyster Cult concept, right, is is something that's borne out in, uh, in Imaginos on the track Blue Oyster Cult. But... Like like you said, Mark, it, it's this there's this conceptual thing that seems to like infiltrate a lot of the songwriting and a lot of the lyrics starting right from the first record. And I think all the way up to the current album that just came out last month or two months ago or whatever it was. Yeah, there there's even a song or two that comes from that cycle on a new album as well. Mm-hmm. It's an, it's an ongoing, developing thing. And I think Albert Bouchard just came out with his own re-recording of Imaginos. That's correct. Reimaginos, which, take, which takes a whole lot of the songs from various eras of Blue Oyster Cold and the Imaginos album. Uh, there's even a song on there called Gil Blanco County that dates back to the soft white underbelly. See, it's a good thing we had Mark do some research, or Mark took it upon himself to do some research, because he's able to you know, relate this, like I said, the origin of the Blue Oyster Cult name, which is good, because I think you should know a little bit about the band you're talking about although like gary said there's a certain air of mystery about them they're you know people know them and i and i think a lot of people probably know them because of the saturday the infamous saturday night live skit with will ferrell on the cowbell you know mm-hmm. insert, insert cowbell clip here well blue the cold has never been a set of larger than life personalities as individuals 
I mean, it's always been the concept that's pretty much done the speaking for the group and as well as the music. You don't really hear about, you know, Eric Bloom getting in a a car accident or being busted for drugs or any of that Motley Crue kind of nonsense. Although he did solicit me. Um, <laughs> what I And I'm not I, – you you laugh, but I went to see – I have the ticket here. Uh, it was one of – I actually, my brother and I went to see them three years in a row in, in New York City at B.B. Uh, King's. Uh, and it was great. It was um, like a New Year's gig that they do. Yeah. And in here it is. It was January 23rd. It wasn't New Year's. I lied. January 23rd, 2004, BB Kings. And I went and they were sitting at a table just like there they are. The Blue Oyster Cult sitting at a table. And I went up to them nervously and I said, hey, can I, I I'm really looking forward to the show. Can I get your autograph? And um, I won't repeat verbatim what he said. But Eric Bloom laughed and said, I'll fill in the blank to you if you pay me enough. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. And then I think the person sitting next to him was like, come on, sign his, sign his thing. So I have a ticket. I have a ticket stub signed by Eric Bloom. He was very nice about it, but but he did solicit sex first. Uh, so <laughs> that's the story. Yeah, you get a ticket and, and more. Um <laughs> But uh, you're, you're right, Mark. They're not a band that the where the personas of the people in the band uh, are are all that um, magnified uh, in pop culture. It's it's really about the music and the mystique and and the artwork. Speaking of the artwork, um, Blue Oyster Cult does have some of the most distinctive artwork in the hard in the hard rock pantheon. Um, some of the album cover images are incredibly memorable. Um, Fire of Unknown Origin, the actual Blue Oyster Cult depicted. Um, the first album, the, uh, the strange stairways or what elevators or whatever that thing is on the front. Yeah, is that his name? Gallic or something? Gallic. Yeah, I love, yeah. This is sort of a, its own commercial for like vinyl, right? It's, it's like holding that 12 by 12 image in your hand and staring at it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, we all grew up in the album era, so we know what it's like to just be drawn to a group sim- solely by album artwork. And of course, we're all, you know, part of the Kiss cult, so we all know, like, when we saw Kiss albums, we'd go ooh and ah, and that can really apply to any band that has a really strong visual uh, image. And Blue Oyster Cult, it's like one of the drawbacks to like getting into them the way I did with the CD box set is that they're just these little cardboard, these shrunk down little cardboard uh, sleeves. But if you go, you know, you go online, you can look at the artwork. But yeah, I can imagine that looking at those albums in a store had to be, been something. Hmm. The other interesting thing is that none of the original albums ever came with a lyric sheet. You literally had it was around 1977, I think it was with the Spectres album, that they gave you a little offer. You could you could write in, send a self-addressed stamped envelope, and get a computer print out of the lyrics, which is the first time that probably a lot of people had ever seen them printed. So that, that was another thing that added to the layer of mystery. And was that only for that record, or would they send you like all the lyrics up to that point? They, they would be backdated up to that point. Oh wow, that's really cool. I didn't know that. Uh, you know, it'd be funny if you if you if you had that address to send in like a a check or something and just see what happens. You know. <laughs> Great. Yeah, let's do that. Right after we record, we're all. I'm I'm writing out a check. I, that's really cool. Hey, I'm, well, I'm gonna send a letter to the Kiss Army because damn it, they still owe me two newsletters from 1978. <laughs> I'm not joking, Gary. I'm still very upset with. Uh, you know, the Kiss Merchandise Company. Bill Alcoin owes me some money. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> My silk tour jacket with the big middle finger on the back has never come in. I'm, wow. st- I'm still sore about that. Oh, no. We'll have to have a Kiss Gripes show at some point. But, you know, getting back to Blue Oyster Cult, Gary, do you, I know you said you're more into the songs, but is do you have a favorite album? And if so, which one is it? Uh... Right, it's either the first or, or um, secret treaties, and I think I lean a little bit um, toward the first. I have a kind of relationship with POC that's maybe similar to I think how a lot of people feel about Kiss, where the the very early stuff really blows me away, and then from that point forward, I love a lot of it, 
Um, I will say, unlike Kiss, nothing in the Blue Oyster Cult catalog embarrasses me. <laughs> um, and I stand behind my fandom, you know, throughout. Like, there's nothing where I have to sort of apologize for it. Some of it's cheesy at worst, I guess, but like, none of it's offensive or offensively bad. Um, but I'd say, yeah, the first, the first album, I love Secret Treaties. I really like Tyranny. And um, yeah, that would be my answer. What about you, folks? Mark, I would say that mine has been lately. It's been Mirrors. Mm. which is an album that was produced by a Cheap Tricks producer, Tom Wehrman. It has a bit more of a polished sound. Some of it sounds like a sort of a sideways Steely Dan, actually. Some of the some of the arrangements are very pop. On the other hand, you do have hard rockers like The Vigil, but you have songs like Moon Crazy, which sound a bit like Steely Dan meeting the Doors. There's a lot of heavy Doors influence in BOC, by the way. Mm-hmm. Mirrors has, like I said, it has a bit more of a polished production, but there's also a maturity to it that's that's very intriguing. It's an album made by 30-year-olds, but it, yeah. it's still very compelling. I have to say I love the title track, and I think it's one of those uh, songs like, um, you know, it's like when a band, when a, it's like 1979, right, and everybody's doing a disco song, and I know that the, the title track has a sort of disco feeling. I think it's a great song. I love the I love like the female vocals on it, and In V is an incredible song as well. Yeah, that album that album definitely repays uh, repeated listens. Mm-hmm. Mark, do you have a favorite BOC record? Do you mean? I mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Chris, do you have a favorite BOC record? You've forgotten me already. <laughs> yes, uh, Secret Treaties. There's just something about that album. The first two are great. I just feel like Secret Treaties found them in a very uh, they they were hitting their stride. Uh, in fact, one of the highlights, I went to see BOC for the first time ever uh, a couple of years ago at a uh, theater that's literally down the street from me. And one of the highlights was they they, they did Career of Evil. Oh. It was a great show all around, and um, I'll talk about that a little later on. But I just like that album. It starts off well. It, there's just so, so many good songs on it. And, it, you know, there's only eight songs, but, I mean, it's – it's like t- it's typical of most albums of that time in that it was probably, you know, 35, 40 minutes long. Just great playing, great songs. It's very enjoyable. I, I find it holds up like, you know, like Mark said about Mirrors, it holds up very well to repeated listens. In fact, commuting back and forth to work this week, I listened to as many BOC albums as I could. And that was probably the highlight of the week for me. But I enjoy that album a hell of a lot. Great bonus tracks on the on the remaster as well. Yeah, including the way I, I, the um, re-edited version of uh, Career of Evil, where they change "I want to do it to your daughter on a dirt road" to "I want to." I forget what they, what they changed it to, but it's on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do do it like you ought to, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. do it to your daughter. I mean, that was controversial. Well, I guess it was the seventies. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's a great album, and it's it's interesting that, of course. You know, like I said, I was wanting to delve into their catalog, but I never knew really where to dive in. I was always looking at Agents of Fortune because it seemed like the most obvious one because it had Don't Fear the Reaper on it. Mm. That also has uh, a couple other great songs. This Ain't the Summer of Love and Extraterrestrial ETI, Extraterrestrial mm-hmm. Intelligence. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of richness in their catalog, especially from, uh, like, you know, like I said, 72 through 88 although you know some of those later releases may not hold up quite as well but they're they certainly have their moments yeah fortune is kind of like their rumors it has has their largest hit on it and it's the first album where the production gets to be a bit more polished you know a song like vera gemini it's very very layered and there's songs like you know sinful love and true confessions they are a bit more commercial than people at the time were probably used to hearing from the guys. Well, I think at some point, no matter how progressive you are, or how edgy you are, inevitably you're going to inch closer to the mainstream. You know, Rush did it in their way. BOC did it. Even Kiss, you know, at one point, you know, was going in more of a pop direction disco. So inevitably as bands evolve, you know, you kind of, cater to the marketplace a bit and obviously 
Don't Fear the Reaper is just one of those evergreen songs that is probably one of the three or four Blue Oyster Cult songs that just gets re- played repeatedly on the classic rock radio format. But I think if they're a band that if you delve into their catalog a little deeper, you're going to find some great stuff as far as I'm concerned. Can I ask you a question that I was thinking about today when I was yeah. listening? Yeah. I was, this is a weird question, but I was thinking like, what are they? And I know they're a rock band, they're musicians and and that's, and, and the like, right. But like, you know, Pink Floyd is this like sort of psychology band, right. Or like before that they were like an outer space band, right. And Kiss is like a superhero band, but then they were like also a hair metal band a little bit. Right. And Blue Oyster Cult have this thing. There's like a, right. There's a thing, right. The Imaginos thing is a thing, you know, early on they sort of court, this um, like motorcycle gang ethos with like the transmaniacon imagery. Like, what are they? Are they, are they metal guys? Are they like motorcycle gang guys? Are they, you know, are they pill poppers? Cause that's like a big part of some of the early lyrics as well. There's like some S and M stuff or like weird kink that's in some of the lyrics I almost think they're like a sort of like secret society where like the things you said are part of it and they're they're sort of like living in this castle and conjuring up all these dark images and spirits and that's what you're getting in the music especially the earliest music there's kind of an unknowable quantity or quality about them it's hard to peg them because I've heard them described as progressive metal but I wouldn't really class them as metal. Hard rock, yeah, probably. Mm. But they're just—I I think they—they do have lyrics that are—they um, tend to be a little esoteric, perhaps sort of quasi-intellectual, and that's sometimes due to the—you know—they had different lyricists writing some of their earliest material. But I don't know. They're—they're they're a hard band to categorize. Mark, what would you? Uh, how would you categorize them if you had to? categorize them they're a, a group that are obviously late late 60s rooted during a time when all the different genres of rock and roll were, were slowly being unfolded and therefore you could you could weave back and forth through a number of different genres exploring each one and deciding which one worked for you and that's why you know the first album has elements of steppenwolf there's mm-hmm. bits that's, that sound like grateful dead there's you know, the riff of Cities on Flame is sort of nicked from The Wizard by Black Sabbath. There's a whole lot of doors. There's a, there's a lot of early Pink Floyd, maybe. And there's a lot of, like, garage punk influence as well. And rock and roll at that time was just, like, finding its way. It hadn't separated into different genres yet. I think what BOC ends up as is a is a hard rock band with a great deal of diversity and range do you think that um they kind of wrote to a particular audience because they have that association with like a uh, rock journalism right through through the through um i guess sandy perlman right well B- boc is a band that was tailor-made for cream magazine there's no arguing that mm-hmm yeah, Cream was. I mean, you guys were. I think you guys were all, you know, old enough to remember Cream magazine. They they definitely had their own kind of, uh, you know, style and way about them. And I, and I, and I, Mark, I think you're right. I think they are a band that's really kind of tailor made for that kind of aesthetic, and that sort of audience. You know, that sort of uh, '70s hipster, stoned, you know, groove, you know, groovy kind of person. Uh, maybe someone who's looking for something a little beyond, you know, taking care of business or, or even, dare I say it, rock and roll all night. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like the Steely Dan thing, right, to, that you mentioned. Yeah, they are, they are a band that is definitely college educated. And it helps to have, you know, an appreciation for H.P. Lovecraft on the one hand, uh, Nietzsche on the other, and a whole lot of, you know, history. A lot of, like... Roman history, uh, English history, and you know, just it pays to be a college student when you listen to this band. Right, Richard Meltzer and Sandy Perlman brought a lot of that. That the H.P. Lovecraft thing. I remember um, 
getting really hard into BOC around like 2001, two, three, uh, and having, spending a lot of time on the BOC FAQ, which I don't know if it exists anymore, but it was a good repository of information about the band. And some of it seemed like just straight conjecture because there were sort of lyrical analyses you could read. And a lot of it, especially the Imaginos-related material, seemed to be dipping into Lovecraft lore, right? Like these fish monsters coming out of the water and all that. Well, that is what the Blue Oyster Cult is, you know. But the Oyster Boys are swimming now. Mm-hmm. They are the, the aliens that come aboard dry land, and they influence human history in ways that allow them to express themselves Basically, my take on what Imaginos really amounts to is that the aliens are influencing influencing us all to be their puppets and and experience all of the things that they would like to, but they're unable to, so that they basically experience human history through our eyes for their nefarious, dubious benefit. I tell you what, I wish you wrote the liner notes because I, because I, you know, I, this is, and I'm not throwing shade at anybody. This is just like a, maybe my own inability to decipher it, but I've, I've tried to read the Imaginos sleeve many times, you know, to where I could try to like piece together a, a, a narrative. And I know that it's a non-linear narrative. I forget how they say it. It's like a, what's the... There's a phrase that they use to describe that it as like a a, a not sequential non sequential story or something. Do you remember? Do you know what I'm talking about? Ugh. Yeah, I can't think of the name. Yeah, yeah, I, but I, yeah, I can't I can't follow it as a story. It's sort of like um, the lamb lies down on Broadway or a lot of other rock uh, concept records where it just goes over my head or Game Henge for for people who like fish. I was just gonna say that on the uh, on the rarities bo- uh, the box set there's a disc of, of rarities, and one of the rarities is a Maginos outtake. It's a spoken word introduction by Stephen King. Mm. It's not very long. It, it goes on for maybe like a minute at most, but it, you can definitely tell it's him. He goes, and he just says, "This is the story of Imaginos. But I, I think Mark's and your analyses of it, Gary, are a lot more in depth and probably have explained it better to me. I mean, I don't think I've delved into it quite as much as you guys, but you know, like I said, that's probably, you know, I don't, I don't know if they'd recorded more with Stephen King in terms of telling a story. Maybe it was going to be like the original plan for music from the elder where they were going to have spoken dialogue parts and, you know, to flesh it out as a story. But I, I can't really say, I don't know. I me neither. And I know that there's a demo uh, that leaked about a decade ago. There's like a demo CD or CDs, um, of like the raw Imaginos uh, prior to it becoming a, a BOC record. I don't know, Mark, uh, Chris, have either of you ever listened to that? I've heard a little bit of it. It's very rough. Yeah. Um, no, I've never heard it, but, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised someday if, you know, down the line they put the Cult Imaginos album and then Albert's Reimaginos and then like a, a, you know, maybe like a, CD or two of like what you guys are talking about, but I, on the other hand, I don't think Imaginos is that album that's going to get the deluxe uh, mm-hmm. box treatment if if they do any of them at this point, because you know BOC is a band that uh, you know aside from some remasters with some bonus tracks, they they haven't really exploited their catalog like some other bands have or labels have, I should say. They have a devoted live following, but I don't know if they're a, a, a record sales kind of band anymore. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because, of course, they do have a brand new album available, which is called The Symbol Remains. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I haven't picked that up yet. Have either of you guys gotten that? I have my copy, yes. I haven't. I um, My brother is also a big Blue Oyster Cult fan and probably arguably um, dives deeper than I do. And downloaded the new album and he said it was like he said what i feel about a lot of the later stuff which is that it's like a good fine rock and roll album but maybe it doesn't have some of the things that make blue oyster cult as interesting as they used to be to me back like with the first uh you know handful of records well it's true that the Bouchard brothers are not there anymore Mm -hmm. who of course were 
probably the biggest Imaginos fans among the actual musicians in the group. Um, there's a little bit of, you might say, lack of diversity. It's mostly uh, Buck Dharma and Eric Boom songs. There are some good moments on it. Um, and if you go to YouTube, you can see a bunch of videos of various songs on the album. One is called The Alchemist, which mm-hmm. is a literal telling of an H.P. Lovecraft tale. Yeah, I know. I like that. And I, I, I like, I mean, I, I just, I like that they're still going. I like that they make music that still has some sort of dark, creepy aesthetic to it. And I think you're right about the Bouchard brothers. Although Albert cameoed on the new record, which is cool. That's true. He has a bit of backing vocals on a song called That Was Me. Mm-hmm. That Was Me is almost sort of like a nostalgic retelling of the entire tale. We did this, we did that. That was me in the video. That was me with the cowbell. It's <laughs> great. Yeah, and, you know, speaking of that, I wonder, like, I, I've, I think I've read somewhere that they are, I mean, obviously they have to be aware of the I Need More Cowbell sketch. I think they're okay with it. I think they think it's funny, but, you know, you have to wonder how many people got turned on to Blue Oyster Cult just because of that uh, one-off SNL sketch that has become iconic, I guess, in the you know post-New uh, Millennium era. But, you know, you have to wonder, like, how many people – I also imagine that people probably go up to them and go, I need more cowbell, and they probably want to just throttle them. <laughs> it well, must get old. That sketch came along at a time when BOC didn't even have a record contract, so I imagine that in a roundabout way, that sketch probably sold them more records than anything they were doing at the moment. Oh yeah, I mean it's just it's just funny that of all, you know, they just decided maybe one of the writers was an older guy or grew up like like us and just decided, hey, let's do a, a you know behind the music sketch on. The, the recording of the song and just had the cowbell guy speeding up. And of course, I think it was Will Farrell who played the cowbell guy. And of course it was Christopher Walken who played the producer who for some reason was named Bruce Dickinson, which is like, okay, when I hear Bruce Dickinson, I think of another band, but you know, maybe they just, I don't, you know, got the, I don't know where they got the name from, but it, it, it's a funny sketch, but I just imagine from their perspective, they probably almost in a way, maybe they don't even want to have to perform that song anymore. It's their paranoid. Yes, it's their evergreen. I mean, like I said, it's one of the three songs that's just, you know, they get reduced to as a result of uh, classic rock formatting. You know, on the other hand, they're still being played on those stations, and I, you know, imagine they they probably get somewhat of a songwriting royalty or something from it. You know, I, I guess, but you know, and they're still going. In fact, speaking of that, I, you know, like I said, I got to see them a couple of years ago, and they, they put on a great show. And the one thing, my takeaway from the show was that I was not aware that Buck Dharma sang as many songs as he does. Mm-hmm. He did quite a few songs at the show. I mean, obviously he did, you know, his hits, but he sang quite a bit that night. I mean, Eric Bloom was, you know, playing guitar on some of the tracks and he wasn't just leaving the stage. But, you know, he's a much bigger part of that band than I realized. I just, I, you know, like everybody else... If you don't really follow the band closely, you just assume that one guy's the singer, one guy's the guitar player, and that's it. But Buck Dharma, and he sung on some of the, their biggest hits. I mean, Burning for You, um, Don't Fear the Reaper, Godzilla. I mean, those are huge songs. Yeah. Well, in the old days, every member of the band used to take a turn at the mic. Um, Agents of Fortune does feature, feature vocals from all five members. Um, what's happened, of course, is as other members, the Bouchard brothers have left, and Alan Lanier, the keyboard player, has passed away. And, you know, most the vocal duties have therefore fallen pretty much evenly between Buck Dharma and Eric Bloom. Yeah, and in fact, I, I've become through Spotify, uh, not Spotify, um, Pandora. I've become aware of an album that Buck Dharma did in 1982 called Flat Out. I think it's his first and only solo album. And what's interesting is that some of those songs, I've heard some of the songs from it, they could have been Blue Oyster Cult songs. I don't know if you guys have heard any of these songs, but they're not that much different. They're a little more on the pop side. Some of them, there's you know one ballad, and but it, it's it's material that would have I think sat very well on a Blue Oyster Cult album. Mm. I haven't heard it. 
at that time, you know, like I was saying, there were still five writers in the band, so that album probably consists of songs that, you know, were focus tested for BOC, but probably rejected by the other members. Yeah, that was done in 1982, and that was when the band was kind of going through some tra- a transitional phase. I believe by that point, Albert Bouchard had left the group and was replaced by Rick Downey, who was there. I think he started out as a drum roadie, and then he was like their lighting director, and he became the drummer for a year or two. And then there was this weird thing where Albert came back for a brief period, and then he was gone again and did Imaginos, and they started bringing in other people. And then, you know, through attrition and changes it just got to the point where eric and uh buck dharma are are the only original guys left and and that's the way it is you know today to date and it's been like that for a while i think i'm sorry go ahead no no go ahead no i'm done i I just i you know i just was saying you know it's just the two of those guys now and which is you know you see a lot of these classic bands who are out there like sticks for example and they don't have the original singers. I mean, they're still around, but they, you know, Queensryche, where yeah. the original singers just couldn't get along with the rest of the band. But I think it's pretty cool when you go to see a band like Bluish to Cult and, you know, you still have uh, Eric Bloom and, you know, uh, Buck Dharma, Donald Roser, as he's, you know, probably known legally. So it's kind of neat because a lot of times, you know, as we both know from being Kiss fans, you know, there's great debate over what constitutes the definitive lineup of a band. You know, right. what, and I think when you get to a point where certain members are not in the lineup, it it gets sketchy. But I can I can take a Blue Oyster Cult that at least has the original singer and the original guitar player. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think um, having seen this, you know, current lineup uh, a, a number of times, that they're very good. Like Jules Rodino is an incredible drummer, and I think captures a lot of that. They had um, what's his name, and he's excellent too. Who was the drummer? Damn it! They had him in the like early two thousands. Podcast research at its finest. Uh, uh, Bobby Roninelli. Yeah, he was formerly of Rainbow. Yeah, Yeah. fantastic drummer. No, no, no shade to Bobby Roninelli, but I do think that Jules Rodino captures a lot of the like. What? Like, uh, Bouchard played without being very splashy. Like, there wasn't a lot of cymbals. It was a lot on the snare and the hi-hat and the and the kick drum. And I love that. I love that with early Kiss, too. You hear, like, a lot of the Peter Chris stuff that sounds almost like, you know, kind of a little bit jazzy or big band or a little marching band influence. And I love that sound. And I think Jules Regino does a fantastic job. And Richie uh, Castellano and Danny Miranda are phenomenal musicians. So they have such a great lineup right now. That's true. And Richie Castellano has, has written a great deal on this new album as well. And he's he's gone a long way toward providing them some of the diversity that they need. All of a sudden, there is now a third singer, a third songwriter, a third perspective in the group. So that does restore you know, a little bit of equilibrium keeps things from just becoming, you know, the Bloom and, and Dharma show. Mm-hmm. There's a bit more diversity there. Or the Dharma and Greg show. <laughs> Sorry, I had to say that. Um, <laughs> speaking of uh, Blue Oyster Cult being influential, uh, Gary earlier today turned me on to a little music clip that has a bit of uh, BOC influence, especially in the intro riff. Uh, Gary, I have to ask you, that clip you sent me, is that you singing? That is me singing, yeah. I thought so. It sounded like you. I I thought it it sounded a lot like you. I I enjoyed the track very much. Thank you. Uh, I I I I said it your way because um, I love Cities on Flame. In fact, somewhere I have the I have it on forty five, and um, I realized after I'd written that riff years back that I was just ripping off um, Cities on Flame. And when I when we went to record it. Um, I gave our drummer a copy of that first BOC record, and I told her, just ape what, what's happening on, on Cities on Flame. Like, bring that into this song. And she did a bang-up job. Uh, Dawn McGrath is her name. So, um, yeah, this song, Lady, Lady Letter A, that I wrote is very much a, a BOC ripoff in heart. And so hats off to BOC. Thank you so much. Uh, Gary, with uh, your permission, I'd like to play a little bit of the song right now. Ah, I'd be honored. Thank you. We'll for play sure. like a little, like a little bit of it, and then we'll come back. Thanks. 
Okay, looking forward to hearing this. I'm gonna make it alphabetical Like it's only hypothetical Lady letter A is unforgettable Lady letter B is just incredible Lady letter A is in my breath away Well, that was great. Uh, that was uh, Gary. Tell us, what's the name of that uh, band again? You're the band. The, oh, thank you. The band is called Love Bots. L O V E B O T S, like robots, but we love you. And it's myself, Charlie Cosi, Don McGrath, um, and uh, you could listen on iTunes and YouTube and all the other places where you could listen to music. Thank yeah, you. We'll put a link to this in the show notes. I mean, I, I think it's important when you're influenced by someone to acknowledge it. And I like the fact that you don't make any bones about the fact that you're ripping them off or that you have a strong influence. Because, I mean, if you read about most um, rock stars that we listen to, you know, they'll tell you that the first song they wrote, you know, was a great rewrite of someone else's song. I don't think you can help that. No. I think it's just – and I think whatever your influence are are going to creep into your music. I think there's a difference between something that's derivative and that's influenced by something rather than something that's a direct – ripoff where you're deliberately just trying to ape a certain song or style and i think it's great that you can take your inspiration for boc and turn it into your own thing thank you i i i love the band and uh it, it had to get in there somewhere it's such a great riff on cities on flame it's twisty and interesting and, and hard to play and a, what a cool song also another bouchard tune right is that that's uh albert bouchard singing lead vocals i think Yes, it is. That's his song. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. Like when you say when you have these bands that have multiple lead vocalists, because I think obviously we all kind of grew up on Kiss, and one thing you got they were you know especially after Love Gun, you got four different singers per album. I mean, Paul and Gene sung most of the hits and the and probably the bigger known songs, but Ace and Peter snuck their little tunes in there and. I think it just makes for a more interesting listen. I mean, look at the Beatles. I mean, you know, every album, you know, you'd get at least one song by George and one song sung by Ringo. And, you know, it, it probably gave Paul and uh, John a chance to, you know, take a break and not have to sing all the time. But it just makes for a more interesting listen. And I think Blue Oyster Cult definitely brings that to the table. Although I would say Eric Bloom and Buck Dharma do the majority of the vocals in terms of the hits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Well, again, it plays into the concept of BOC as a sort of collective hive mind of Lovecraftian aliens. You know, they're they're a bit of a gestalt. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way to think of it. It's like you're in the cult if you're like, and and the music plays through you. And of course, I mean, I, I don't, I haven't read any Stephen King novels for a long time, but I'm willing to bet that at least one of his books references one of their songs because he was always referencing song lyrics. Oh, it, and it does. Okay. The stand. You, yes. Yeah. Cause didn't they use don't fear the reaper for the stand, the TV version? Yeah. I, well, and, and I think in the, I don't have it here, but it tell me if I'm wrong that, that um, there are a number of uh, BOC quotes, I think throughout the book. Probably. I haven't read it in years, I but I, so. I do know that like the version of Don't Fear the Reaper that is in that, I believe it's a re-recorded version. Uh, it's one of those deals. I think they were one of the first bands to go and recut some of their classic. Rec- I think they got signed to a new label in the 90s. So part of the deal was they had to do they did this album called Cult Classic and they did a version of Don't Fear the Reaper that, you know, they tried to make it sound as close to the original as possible. Although, of course, they had different band members by that point. But I believe that was the version that they used in the TV uh, miniseries. But, mm-hmm. yeah. But that doesn't surprise me because, I mean, if they were influenced by Lovecraft. I'm sure, you know, Stephen King being the wild child rock and roll guy that he is, it, I, I would think that BOC would be a band that's right up his alley. And, like, you know, like I said earlier, he recorded that intro for Imaginos. I don't know why they didn't use it, but I guess that album has a very long and tormented history. Uh, that you know, I mean, that was in the works for I think what six or seven years before it finally got released. At least, yeah. Mark, Mark, you would know more better than I. Yeah, yeah Albert Bouchard labored on that record for at least three or four years, and 
again was told by the record company there's no single here. So in, in the absence of being able to come up with a single, the record company then insisted that they bill it as a BOC album, which is why um, Eric Bloom and Donald Roser had to, had to be brought in to contribute vocals. Well, I think at that point, too, Bluish Occult was kind of in free fall. I, I believe, in fact, at one point in the late 80s, maybe around 86 or 87 after Club Ninja, I think they actually split up for a brief period or at the very least took a hiatus. And maybe that's why they were lured into doing the Imaginos project. You know, maybe they just didn't have anything in the tank or weren't sure what they were going to do. So this was just an easy way to make a few bucks and, and maybe, you know, to satisfy their contract because right after that record came out, uh, Blue Oyster Cult got dropped by Columbia after, you know, 15 or 16 years on the label. That's pretty significant, you know, especially when you consider the uh, amount of albums they sold and how many hits they had. It's a tough record to go out on and, and, and in some ways a little bit of a slog to, to get through. But there are some moments of absolute transcendent perfection on Imagine It's like I love Del Rio's song. I like uh, I Am the One You Warned Me Of. And yeah. I am not super crazy about the reimagining of um, uh, astronomy. Uh, but I do like the song Blue Oyster Cult. I, th- I, I I prefer Subhuman, but I like Blue Oyster Cult. I like what they did with it. I think the last thing that we should mention is the fact that Albert Bouchard has gone out of his way to uh, reimagine Imaginos. In fact, his new solo album is called Reimaginos. and does feature all of those songs in uh, new versions. I don't know if any of you guys have heard the album. I heard the, the, the single from the album. It's called Black Telescope. Hmm. A, no, I haven't a, heard. It's a reimagining a workshop of the telescopes. It's, nice. He does it as a sort of a sea shanty, and once you see the video, you'll you'll never forget it. It's it's very very memorable. Are there any cameos on the album from BOC or BOC related personnel? His brother. Um, is, Joe? Yeah, Joe oh, plays Joe great. plays a bit of trumpet on the album. Wow. But not bass, huh? No, I, I think um, this is one of those deals where Albert basically plays most of the instruments himself. Um, Joe does come in for a cameo on the song Black Telescope. He plays the trumpet solo. I'm going to have to, you know what? I didn't know that that existed, and I think I'm going to have to download it uh, or just buy a physical copy of it. That's really cool. I'm looking for Looking forward to listening to that. Thank you. Yeah, that's it's a fascinating new record, and I think he's going to be um, over the next couple of years uh, finally completing the Imaginos cycle. I think that's the idea here. How much of it is like material that isn't on the Imaginos record versus how much of it is actually the Imaginos record re reimagined? I think there must. According to an interview I read, there must be about 24 or 25 songs in the Imaginos cycle. Yeah. So this album contains like the first 10 or so, and then and I guess the next record will contain the rest of them. That's really exciting. I, I, I got to listen to that. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's the perfect way to wrap up the BFC cycle, and also this episode, I believe. I think, yeah, I think we've covered a lot of ground here, and it's been very interesting to get you guys' perspectives on this i you know like i said gary i know i've known for quite a long time that you're a big fan so it's it's really great you know to have you here enlightening us with your perspectives on you know blue oyster cult and we're very grateful and happy that you came on the show thank you so much i I had such a nice time talking about it you guys are great and um i'm so glad we're doing this yeah it's been a pleasure to talk to you gary we really appreciate it likewise gary do you have anything you'd like to promote or push while you're here um you know, everybody yes listen to podcast but i actually want to promote something that's a little bit uh like it's a bit different um my wife my wife uh has a podcast and um i'm gonna say what it's about and i'm gonna tell you what it is and then i'm gonna reassure you that it's actually super cool and funny and interesting and nothing like you might expect so it is a podcast called stuck in stony brook and it is a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. And it is her. She's a child psychologist. 
Uh, it is her friend Anne, who is a pop culture journalist, writer. And it is uh, my wife's niece, Emily, who is uh, a political uh, scientist, uh, like a poli-sci theorist, uh, professor, right? And and they go through the books in this well-known book series, kind of dissecting it and turning it on its head. It's hilarious. It's funny. It's smart. Um, I am super biased, but it's a great thing to listen to. And I did the theme music for it. So... Um, Go listen to Stuck in Stony Brook. You won't regret it. Even if you haven't read any of those books, you will probably have a really good time. Is it available on iTunes, Gary? Yes, it is. Yeah. So um, go to iTunes, Stuck in Stony Brook. Uh, leave them a, a review, but only a good review. Um, and thank you so much for um, for letting me plug the podcast. It is a super good pl- uh, podcast. Oh, of course. And please, you know, send us a link to that so we can put that in the show notes. You know, we want to. We, we want to give that some some push. And, of course, like you said, you got to listen to podcast. And, you know, Gary, you're partially to blame for this show because you and Ken, the podfather, gave us our first shots as podcasters, uh, you know, or, or guests. And, you know, that kind of put the worm in our thing. Well, wait a minute. We can do this. So, you know, thanks again for allowing us to, you know, yap on your show. And we thank you for returning the favor on our show. Awesome. Such a uh, great thing. Great community of podcasters. Um, and I'm proud to be a part of it and have and share this time with you. That's cool. Well, I think that wraps everything up. Uh, thank you again, Gary. And we look forward to chatting with you again sometime. Hell yeah. I, I definitely want to have you back because, you know, you dropped you basically, you know, you mentioned Pink Floyd. And that's another band we need to really delve into at some point. And we when the time comes, Gary, we're going to call on you again to talk about the Floyd. Yes, do it, please. And we and we do plan on getting your partners in crime, Ken and uh, Mr. Matt Porter, on the show as well for other bands that we won't disclose at this time. But we want to get all uh, our podcast friends on the show at some point, KST, Cassius, talk about different things and just get everybody involved because it's, it's a lot of fun. And, I mean, you know, I can't think of a better way to spend a Saturday evening than just – yapping away with a couple of friends about some great music. Hell yeah. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to it. And on that note, this ends this episode of uh, the Double K Super Show. The opinions expressed on the Double K Super Show do not necessarily reflect those of the Double K Super Show staff or any rational human being for that matter. The Double K Super Show is a Double K production. Copyright 2010 Double K Productions. All rights preserved.